Okay, let's see if this is actually going to work. I'm your lawyer, Patrick McGeehan, and I'm your best friend at your worst time. And this is my show, podcast, whatever, Law and the Life. Today, we're going to take a look at domestic violence cases, um, how to file for a petition, what is domestic violence, and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm going to take you behind the yellow tape. I've been getting a lot of questions and DMs about how certain cases are handled by the police. What's it like to go to a domestic violence case? So I'm going to take you behind the yellow caution tape, show you what it's like to handle a domestic violence case and go over a case or two that I've actually handled and give you an idea of the police response and the training that they're involved in. Uh, once again, you can always catch me here. I'm going to try to do live every Wednesday at around six o'clock and convert it to the podcast, which is on all the platforms. It's the Law and Life podcast. This one's going to be the second one I've done. It's going to be Law and the Life Behind the Yellow Tape. This one is Domestic Violence. And you can also follow me on, of course, Facebook. I have the Law Offices of Patrick J. McGeehan PA page. I have a group called Ask a Florida Divorce Lawyer. Um, I'm on Instagram as the underscore magic underscore city underscore lawyer. I'm on Tumblr as magic-city-lawyer. I'm on Snapchat as Patrick McGeehan. I'm on LinkedIn as Patrick McGeehan. And of course I am on TikTok as the Magic City or Magic City Lawyer, magic underscore city underscore lawyer. And let's see, I hope this is working. Hopefully somebody will check in and I won't be talking to myself, but if I am, it'll work fine because it'll be a podcast eventually. And hopefully everybody is hearing me. I see we have one checked in, maybe. Anyway, okay, so in Florida, domestic violence. There's two flavors of domestic violence. There's criminal and there's civil. And domestic violence, whether it is criminal or civil, is anything between two people who are married, are family members, are household members that reside together as a family. If they bite, kick, scratch, punch, pull hair, or have any unwanted, unauthorized contact with another member that meets that definition, it's considered domestic violence. In Florida, the battery statute, which most domestic violence cases start out as, is very broad. Battery is essentially unwanted touching or striking of another person. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't require injuries. Um, it doesn't require any visible markings or anything like that. You can make a battery allegation based simply on that. Most arrests that I see involve domestic battery and there's some type of mark that's there that the police document. They usually take pictures of it. And let's check in here. <clears throat> I'm going to go on the mobile device and see if we're, we're actually live. Let's see. Because nobody is here. So I'm wondering if we are live. So I'm wondering if we are live. All right, yes, we appear to be live. So let's turn that down so we don't have a backlash. Anyway, okay, 
so police departments in South Florida and Florida in general have pro arrest policies when it comes to domestic violence. So if they go out to a call and there's an allegation of domestic violence and there's something that they see that gives an indication, some type of evidence or statements, you know, a red mark or something like that, that indicates that somebody was touched in an unauthorized way and you know, an unwanted way, they're required to make an arrest. Sometimes that can be difficult for them and it seems like they just flip a coin and make the arrest. All right, Joshua, I finally got my first viewer. Joshua, he's in. So, hey, Joshua. So I know hopefully it's working and you can hear me as well as see me. So anyway, continuing on, that's criminal domestic violence. And there's two flavors of criminal domestic violence. There's misdemeanor domestic violence, which is the vast majority of cases, which are cases where the battery or the assault is not with a weapon. It's not with deadly intent. It's, you know, fist, hands slapping, pulling hair, stuff like that. And there's also felony domestic violence. Felony domestic violence is when you use a deadly weapon. Same for, you know, domestic felony, domestic battery or felony domestic assault when you use a deadly weapon. Those are the two forms of criminal domestic violence. Uh, in a criminal case, you will be arrested. In Florida, you have to be held to see a judge at a bond hearing. So if you're arrested on a domestic-related crime, you'll be held most likely overnight until you see the judge the next day, and the judge will determine what your bond is, if you're released, and what conditions you're released upon. If you're released, um, if it's you know a serious, serious case in some counties, they won't release you. But most counties, they do. Down here in South Florida, Dave Broward, Palm Beach County, they will release you eventually when you do see the judge so you're going to be spending the, the night at least in at least one night in jail if you get arrested for example late on a friday night very early in the a.m on a saturday you may miss the next bond hearing that comes up broward and palm beach have bond hearings in the morning on the weekends as well as dade county so if you come in at one o'clock or midnight on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, you may miss that nine o'clock bond hearing. And then you'll be there another night until Sunday at nine o'clock when you go before the judge for the following day's bond hearing because corrections won't have you ready. It takes corrections eight hours to do everything. It takes them eight hours to process you, eight hours to move you through to the system. And then if your bond is posted or you're, you're granted release, it'll take them another eight hours or so to end up releasing you. So that's the minimum you can, you're going to plan to spend in there. You're going to be, be there at least overnight. Even if you get arrested, you know, let's say you get arrested on a Saturday morning or a weekday morning, you're going to miss that bond hearing, that nine o'clock bond hearing. You're probably going to miss the afternoon bond hearing during, uh, during the week and you're gonna catch that next bond hearing on the following day at nine o'clock. Or, you know, you may catch the afternoon bond hearing if you're arrested. At 1 a.m., you're gonna miss the nine o'clock, but you may catch the afternoon bond hearing in Miami-Dade County. And depending upon what you're charged with, is they'll determine what conditions you're released upon and what the bond is, if there is a bond. Um, the judges have wide discretion I've never seen them not find probable cause at a bond hearing involving a domestic case. Uh, they will release you on bond 
sometimes there's ankle monitors involved. Sometimes there's house arrest involved. Um, of course, there's going to be supervision and reporting that you're the, going to end up having to pay for and all that. It's a messy process. Anyway, so from there, once you're released, your next step is you'll get an arraignment date. And that's usually around 30 days later. An arraignment is where you go in, you plead not guilty, guilty or no contest. Of course, you're going to plead not guilty and the case takes off from there. And it can take a matter of months before your case is resolved. It's not uncommon for a simple domestic violence battery case, for example, to go six or nine months. In Florida, the state attorneys by statute can prosecute you regardless of whether or not the victim wants to prosecute you. The victim can go in and say, I don't want to press charges. She could tell the police that. She could tell the state attorney that. And the state attorneys will still try to prosecute you to some degree in Broward more so than Dade. Um, they'll try to bring the, the victim in for a sworn statement. They'll send the victim a subpoena. All that doesn't work. Then they'll start sending investigators to try to get them out there to get them in. They'll do everything they can to get them in because they need that sworn testimony to continue with their case. In Dade County, they will wait to file charges. The state will wait to file charges until they get that testimony. In Broward County, they'll file it as soon as they receive the arrest affidavit from the police department. Same thing with Palm Beach County. Palm Beach County will file the case before they interview the alleged victim in the case. And the case will proceed. Um, some counties have diversion programs. Dave Broward, Palm Beach have diversion programs for misdemeanor, domestic violence, not felony domestic violence, and um, neither neither Dade or Broward County have mental health court for domestic violence cases. So if it's a case involving um, somebody with a mental health issue, it's going to go through the regular system, and it's not going to go through the mental health system, whereas if it was a non-domestic related misdemeanor, a lot of those cases where they involve people with the mental illness, you can get them into mental health court, which is a lot better for them. Um, they receive services, and the recidivism rate is a lot lower there. So that's criminal domestic violence. If it's a felony domestic violence case, it's going to be a little bit more protracted because you're going to have to do depositions. The discovery process is going to be more extensive. And uh, you're going to have to interview the cops, all the witnesses, the victim, everybody involved, look for evidence because a domestic violence case, it's a felony domestic violence case, if you get found guilty of that is significant. Any domestic violence case that you found, you're found guilty of that goes on your record can cause you a problem. It can affect constitutional rights. It can affect your ability to obtain housing. It can affect your ability to obtain um, employment. It can affect your ability to obtain, obtain licensing, healthcare licensing or daycare licensing, anything like that. It can also affect. Now on the civil, on before I get to the civil side, one other thing. At the bond hearing on a domestic violence case, no matter what kind of domestic violence case, the judge will automatically enter a stay-away order where the defendant is required to stay away from the alleged victim. That's criminal. In the civil side of it, there's domestic violence injunctions. Domestic violence injunctions are restraining orders, stay-away orders, whatever they're called. On the civil side, 
are supplemental to the stay away order that will be entered in the criminal case. To file for a domestic violence injunction, there's there's several different types of violence injunctions. There's domestic violence, repeat violence, dating violence, stalking violence, and the extreme risk protection orders or the red flag laws or the gun confiscation orders or whatever you want to call them. All of those are conducted in the domestic violence court. With the exception of the extreme risk protection orders, the remaining violence petitions and injunctions are basically the same. It just depends on the classification as related to the relationship between the two people. So we'll just call it domestic violence because pretty much everything progresses the same way without a great deal of deviation. So to file for a domestic violence injunction or restraining order, you have to file a petition for protection against domestic violence with or without minor children. If there's domestic violence involving the perpetrator and the children, you can file it on behalf of the children also or only on behalf of the children if the domestic violence is directed at the children. So you could have one case for an adult who's a victim of domestic violence and you can have another case on behalf of a minor child who is also a victim of domestic violence against the same person. To file the petition, you go down to the courthouse. In Dade County, you can go down to the main courthouse at 175 Northwest 1st Street. You can go to the South Dade Government Center behind Color Ridge Mall, the North Dade Justice Center in North Miami Beach, the Hialeah Courthouse, and the Caleb Center on 54th Street. When you go in, you ask the officer or the person at the information desk where the domestic violence intake unit is, and they'll direct you. It's usually an unmarked door that is not very far. It's usually in the lobby, and they can usually point you right to the door and watch you walk to the door. You go in there, a paralegal will type everything, will prepare everything for you. You sit down there, you tell them the story, they'll type it out. In Dade County, they'll type it out for you. In Broward and Palm Beach County, you have to write it out yourself. They'll put everything together. They'll file it for you. They'll take it to the judge for you, and then they'll let you know what the judge determines. The Once the case gets to the judge, the judge can do a couple different things. The judge can enter a temporary injunction or deny a temporary injunction and set a final hearing. So what happens if the judge denies the temporary injunction based on your petition? They'll set it for usually within 15 days for a hearing. The judge will hear all the evidence and determine if a permanent injunction should be issued at that time. Anything comes up in between the time of the filing and the time of the final hearing, you can supplement it, the petition that you already have in place. If the judge enters a temporary injunction, the petitioner, who's the person who files for the injunction, and the respondent is the person who the injunction or restraining order is against. The petitioner will be notified, will be given a copy of the entire packet, as well as a sealed copy of the entire packet to keep with them in case they run across the respondent or have contact with the respondent prior to the respondent being served. Service packet, which includes the temporary injunction, will be sent to the sheriff's office and the sheriff's office will go out and attempt to serve the person. If the person is served prior to the final hearing, at the final hearing, you can go forward on the case. If the person not 
served by the time of the final hearing. They'll extend the, the temporary injunction and they'll reset the final hearing. Once, once you get the date for the final hearing, the final hearing is set for 15 minutes. There'll be a bunch of other cases set at the same time. You can't present a domestic violence case in 15 minutes. I see people try it all the time. Um, that's 15 minutes total for the whole case. So technically it's seven and a half for you, seven and a half for the other person. It just can't be done. Um, what I routinely do in my cases is when somebody comes to me and they have a final hearing set, I do a motion to continue and special set the case and usually set it for at least an hour or two, depending upon the complexity of the case. Sometimes it's four hours, um, depending upon if there's any witnesses and the judge will accommodate you. They'll always try to give you enough time to uh, present your case and they'll special set it for that time that you asked for and they'll extend the temporary injunction up until that time. At the final, you know, in the interim, you'll do your depositions or your discovery and your investigation and all that. And then when you come to the final hearing, you'll present all that to the judge in a real, you know, the condensed version is you present all that to the judge and the judge will decide whether a permanent or injunction is warranted or not. The other side will present their case. Once the judge hears both sides of the case, the judge will decide what goes in, whether a permanent injunction is entered or not. So that pretty much sums up the process for domestic violence injunctions. It's very easy. It's time consuming. It takes a few hours, but the process is very easy. You don't have to, you can bring pictures if you want to. You can bring police reports if you want to. Don't necessarily have to. You have to meet the standard and show that you are a victim of domestic violence and that you are fearful that if an injunction is not entered, that you will continue to be at risk of domestic violence from the respondent, that particular person. Um, any questions about uh, the domestic violence process, feel free to let me know. I mean, contact me on many platforms. You can call me. My office number is, is widely available. It's on my website, which is www.pjmlawyer.com. Uh, you can email me at patrick at pjmlawyer.com, any, any of that stuff. The type of domestic violence cases I handle as a lawyer team tend to be uh, fairly significant cases with you know, significant injuries. I have several broken bone cases. I have a lot of cases that involve bruising, black eyes, cut lips, stuff like that. Nothing like I used to see when I was a policeman, but still fairly significant cases. Um, I do a lot of felony domestic violence in criminal court, and I do a bunch, just a crazy amount of domestic violence injunctions in civil court and go back between the two. A lot of people get confused between the civil side and the, the criminal side, and you can easily get into a real mess with domestic violence. You can have multiple cases going on at the same time. Like I said before, if a child's involved and the child is a victim of domestic violence and there was an arrest and the other parent or the other partner or whatever they are is an alleged victim, you can have three cases right there. You can have one for the adult victim, one for the child, and one for the arrest. So if it's a married couple and they decide, you know, one of the parties decides that they don't want to be married and they file a divorce case, 
now you can have a fourth case coming along. If the police notified DCF, which is Department of Children and Family, which is Child Services in Florida, you can have a DCF case or a dependency case involved there. So you could have five cases going on all related to the same incident. And it can be totally, it can get totally out of control and be very difficult to manage for most people. And if that's the case, you know, you definitely recommend that you retain a lawyer to handle all that and to keep it all straight. I always recommend that people do not represent themselves in domestic violence cases, whether it's criminal or civil, because the finding that you were, you know, finding a guilt in a criminal case or the entry of a permanent injunction in a civil case does have potential lifelong consequences, affects some of your constitutional rights, your ability to obtain housing, employment, licensing, and all that stuff. A lot of people think mistakenly that they can just go in and go to the judge, nothing like that happened, here's what happened, whatever, whatever, and the judge will automatically believe them. I get a lot of calls from people that try to represent themselves in domestic violence cases. They end up getting a permanent injunction issued against them, and then they come to me afterward and want to dissolve the permanent injunction, which is nearly impossible. You have a very limited time to move for rehearing in those cases. Most people contact me, it's way too late. And even if it isn't too late, um, a lot of times you still, the standard is, is so hard to meet, a lot of times you can't get it uh, granted. In the past maybe two years, I filed five motions for rehearing of domestic violence cases and I've had one granted. So it's if if you get to the point where you have an injunction against you, it's very very difficult to get it overturned. Of course, if you if you go to trial in a criminal case and you get convicted of domestic violence, you're you're going to be in, really in trouble then, um, because you're gonna, you're going to have to deal with that conviction, having that conviction on your record. And, it's going to be a real mess. It's even harder than the civil domestic violence cases. So that's domestic violence in a nutshell. Any questions? I have a lot of videos on my YouTube channel about domestic violence, which answer a lot of questions. Feel free to take a look at them whenever you want. A lot of good information there, as well as a lot of good information. I have a domestic violence section on my website that contains a bunch of information. Um, that's about it as far as the two different types of domestic violence and the domestic violence process. Like I said, I get a lot of questions about what happens when you respond to a domestic violence call, when the police respond to a domestic violence call. Um, how do you handle a domestic violence call? Why are domestic violence calls so dangerous for the police? Yeah, just let me check in here. All right. It says I have four people. I see one person. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Okay. All right. So if many of you don't know, I used to be a Miami-Dade police officer. I was a homicide detective for most of my career there for about 16 years. Um, I handled a lot of cases. As you can imagine, Miami is a very... Business, business for the police in Miami is very good. Um, I did a, my first few years in uniform patrol. 
And then I went to homicide about my fourth year and the rest of it, my rest of my career was in homicide. So to take, how do the police handle calls? Let me take you behind what I call the yellow tape. You know, the yellow caution tape that says, do not cross police, caution, do not cross, whatever. Let me tell you about a case I handled with my partner. This was years and years ago, but it's a case that I have very vivid memories of. And it's just the quintessential, terrible, terrible domestic violence case. My partner and I were working midnight shift. It was a Friday or a Saturday night. It was midnight, one o'clock in the morning or so. We get a call to a house about a domestic disturbance. Actually, it was an apartment about a domestic disturbance. And our apartment complexes down here, we have these mega apartment complexes with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units crammed into a, a complex. And this our complexes, you know, they go around in a circle or they go around in a square. They're you know, three or four or sometimes five or six stories tall. And it's just a lot of people crammed into a very small living space. So we go to this case, you know, it's a typical domestic violence case. You have to be cautious when you go to domestic violence cases because they can go crazy um, very, very quickly. Domestic violence cases, domestic disturbance cases are always two-man calls. They're going to send at least two officers. Uh, when you get there, you know, the dispatcher is going to give you, they're going to try to keep the people online as long as they can and get as much information as they can. So when you're dispatched to a domestic violence call, they're going to be updating you with information until you make contact if information is coming in. So when you respond to these types of domestic calls in these apartment complexes, you kind of park away from the entryway, depending upon how the, it's structured, the entryway, and you walk up to it, especially at night. If you're responding to a domestic violence call at a house, you're going to park a few houses away, you're going to turn out your lights, and you're going to walk up. Um, when you get to the door, you're going to listen for a moment. You're going to wait. Of course, you're going to wait for your partner. You're not going to go up by yourself. Um, you're going to wait for your partner to get there. And then when you go up to make contact, you're going to go to the door or window or whatever. And you're going to listen to see if you can hear what's going on, um, to see if you can hear any yelling or screaming, anything like that. Then you're going to knock on the door. Of course, you're not going to stand in front of the door. You're going to stand to the side of the door in case they come out shooting or something like that, which does happen. When they open the door and they make contact with you, you got to position yourself in a way that they can't slam the door on you and cut you off from the alleged victim that may be inside. So you got to you know, if they don't let you in, you kind of got to talk your way in or sometimes even push your way in. Or if the other person is in there screaming or yelling, you, you just go in for their safety. The first thing you're going to do is if it's two people involved, you're going to separate them. One officer is going to talk to one person. One officer is going to talk to the other person, get their story, exchange information and determine what the proper course of conduct to do is, whether to make an arrest or not to make an arrest. In Florida, most police departments on domestic violence cases are pro-arrest. You have to determine, if you can determine who the primary aggressor is, that is the person you arrest. If you can determine that, you must make an arrest. The officers must make an arrest in those cases. 
So you make you make the determination, you find the person you're going to arrest, you put them in handcuffs, you arrest them. If it doesn't go bad up to that point and you make it past that point, you're doing good. That is the point where usually if it's going to go bad, it can go bad. Um, once they realize you're making an arrest, sometimes the victim protests, doesn't want to go with an arrest, doesn't want you to arrest the person, protests the arrest. It can escalate to a physical attack, and then you're fighting two people. And once you decide to make an arrest, you have to very quickly handcuff that person, get them out of the house, get them separated from that other party as soon as possible so it doesn't go bad. So my partner and I go to this house, typical domestic violence call. You get a lot of those calls. 99% of them are, you know, the people are cooperative. It's not a problem. You got a job to do. You do your job. You make an arrest. You don't make an arrest, whatever. You write the report. And you, you don't have any any violence towards the officers involved. That's 99% of them. It's that 1% that gets bad that can get you hurt. Where people, you know, where guns are involved, people want to shoot, they want to fight. They tell you, absolutely, I'm not going to jail. You got to deal with that. So anyway, we go in, we arrest, we arrest this guy. We're taking him out to the car. We're on the first floor and we walk out through the landing. And this complex was, it was separate buildings. And then each building had like a breezeway with a stairwell that went up four stories. We were on the first floor. So we're coming out towards that parking lot in that breezeway where our police cars were parked and we're walking towards the police cars. As we're getting ready to put this guy in the car, he's all cuffed up and everything. We hear some screaming coming to our left. So we turn and look to the left at this other building that's across the way, probably about 30 yards away, maybe 50 yards away. There's a guy and a girl on a landing. Now they were on an apartment. Their building had the end apartments and on the end apartment, it had a stairwell on the outside of the building that went up to the floor. I think on the out, I think the outside, if I remember correctly, the outside apartments only had a first and second floor. Anyway, they were on the second floor and they were yelling and screaming and it was, you know, bitch, I'm gonna kill you. And she's screaming at him. They're screaming at each other. They have no idea that we're there. They can't see us. They're just, they're so involved with each other that, which is very common that they just tune everything else out. Uh, we yelled at them a couple times. They didn't hear them. We're securing our guy in the car and then we're going to go over to him. As we get our guy secured in the car and we turn our attention to this new fight, the guy pushes the girl down the stairwell. And it goes from the second floor. It's one flight straight down. She goes down the stairs. She's. I remember her body, body tumbling down the stairs very vividly. And she lands at the bottom of the stairs. He goes back inside, closes the door. So we, you know, we go running over there. We go to this girl. She's messed up. She's, she's very badly injured. She's about, I remember she had blonde hair, like really, really blonde hair, really, really pale skin. She was about five foot two, maybe, maybe five foot three on a good day, maybe 110 pounds, uh, fairly thin, maybe 22, 23 years old. And I remember running up to her and she was rolled over. She was on her back and she was just laying there and she was 
breathing very, very shallow. Um, she wasn't moving. And I remember, you know, talking to her, trying to get her to respond. And I remember touching her face on her cheek. And it was just like mushy, like a sponge. All the bones in her face were basically broken and shattered. Um, she had a, a fairly significant arm injury. It looks like she had a compound fracture in her upper arm. Uh, bl just blood everywhere, bleeding out of her head, you know, bleeding from her arm. It's a lot, a lot of blood. Uh, we call fire rescue. You know, fire rescues responding. They're going to respond on a call like that with lights and sirens. Uh, my partner turns his attention to the guy, goes upstairs, bangs on the door. The guy opens the door. Partner grab, immediately grabs him because th this guy's dangerous. You're not going to sit there and lollygag and dillygaff with this guy. You're going to grab this guy and you're going to hook him up as soon as possible. Get him in cuffs immediately. You're not going to, hey, what happened, all that stuff. You can do that after you get this guy in cuffs and get him searched. So my partner gets him, gets him out, drags him out of the apartment. You know, As soon as the guy opens the door, my partner just grabs him by the arm and spins him around, cuffs him up and sits them down. We get fire rescue over there, fire rescue. They put the neck brace on her. She's you know, really, really messed up. She's still not responding. She's still breathing, but she's still not responding. Uh, they get her loaded up in the fire rescue truck and off to the hospital. She did live. We went to the hospital after we booked the guy in to get her information and you know, interview her. Um, she, she did live. Um, a few hours later, we went to the hospital. She was alert and talking and, you know, told us the whole story. Um, they'd been boyfriend and girlfriend for about six months, two months ago, they decided to move in. He's been violent the whole time. She described the quintessential domestic violence cycle to us. And before my battery dies, cause I see it's clicking on my computer. Let me plug it in here. There we go. You know, the quintessential domestic violence, the cycle that needs to be broken. It's, it's she couldn't have described it more to a T. Um, I don't know what happened afterward, whether she went back to him or not, but that was the end of our involvement. You know, the state filed felony domestic violence uh, charges against him. The case went through the system and I don't, I don't specifically recall whether he was found guilty or whatever. But um, at that time, I mean, this, you just look at this at this poor girl and you realize, you know, this is somebody's sister, this is somebody's daughter, uh, could be somebody's mother or whatever. And she is just terribly messed up purposely by this guy who supposedly loves her. And a lot of people, when they're on the scene, a lot of victims, they just, they don't want the perpetrator or the subject arrested because, you know, supposedly they love him. But there's got to be, if you don't have a break in that cycle, if you don't have some type of intervention in that cycle, I've seen those cycles progress to a point where one person finally kills the other. Most of the time, it's the guy who kills the girl. Sometimes it's the girl who kills the guy in, in self-defense. But they, it can progress to, you know, where some people are killed. This is a case where... It's a very short relationship. It's only a few months, you know, six months. And this guy is doing this already, you know, giving her significant injuries and, you know, to somebody you're supposed to, supposed to love. I just, I just can't see it.
you got to break those cycles. There's help out there. I have a lot of resources for domestic violence help on my website. Just keep in mind that, you know, whether you have a no contact order in a criminal case or you get a domestic violence injunction against a person, just remember that it's only a piece of paper. You need to have a good safety plan in place. You know, the what, what if plan you need in place. It has to be a good safety plan work through it, make sure you know it, make sure you understand it. I tell people to write them out. I have a format of a safety plan on my website that I refer a lot of people to. And just remember that the the restraining orders and the no contact orders are necessary. I absolutely recommend you get them if the situation fits. But in the end, they're just pieces of paper. You have to do everything you can to protect yourself. Thank you for the uh, for the few people that joined me. Um, we'll put, we'll leave this on YouTube. I'll convert it to uh, audio only. It'll go up on my podcast platform, which is Law and the Life Podcast. It's on available on all the major uh, podcasting platforms. Um, if you Google search it, it'll come up. I know it's on Spotify. It's on Anchor. I think it's on iHeartRadio. It's on Apple. All those, um, as well as it'll always be on my YouTube channel, along with some other information. If you have any questions regarding domestic violence, please let me know. Um, if you have any requests regarding, like, I, I get always get a lot of questions about my career as a police officer, and that's why I did, decided to do the behind the yellow tape. Um, in an upcoming one, I'm going to do a behind the yellow tape. You know what it's like responding to a murder scene, and uh, describe you know a couple murder cases that I've been on, and, and what it's like, and what we do, what the police do. It's fairly universal. I worked for the Miami-Dade Police Department, which is a very large police department. Um, I think it's the largest in Southeast United States. We have specialized units, like a lot of police departments, a lot of smaller police departments. You have uniform patrol, which are the officers you see in the badge and the uniform out on the road. Um, some of those guys could be SWAT guys. They're only part-time SWAT guys. You have detectives. Sometimes you have detectives that handle all kinds of investigations, everything from homicides to shopliftings. We're very fortunate. We have we have a very large police department. Our homicide detectives only handle homicides. We have sexual battery detectives. We have robbery detectives, general investigation detectives. You know, er everything's separate because we just have enough resources. We had enough people that we can have those specialized units. We are the sheriff's office in Miami-Dade Police Department. Is the sheriff's office in Miami-Dade County? We handle major crimes, homicides, robberies, sexual batteries for a lot of the smaller municipalities that don't have enough people or don't have the detectives with the expertise to handle that. So I was very fortunate to get that experience, you know, that specialized experience that I had. And uh, if you're interested, I understand true crime and these crime cons are very, very popular. Um, if you're interested, I can walk you through different types of crimes that I handle, you know, from murders to robberies to sexual batteries to shootings. Uh, when you're a policeman and you, especially when you're when you're in a department or you're in a geographical area as large as Miami, you see a lot. You'll see a lot more in a year than some officers in small rural departments will see in five or six years. Um, back when I was a policeman was in the late 80s, early 90s. When I was working patrol, we had, you know, that was the end of the cocaine cowboy days. There was a lot of shoot 'em up going on here in Miami. The homicide rate was crazy. It, it was more than twice what it is now. 
Um, so we got a lot of, I, I have a lot of good cases that I went to. If anybody's interested in that, or you have a specific case you would like to discuss, let me know. You know, email me, get a hold of me, DM me, get a hold of me somehow, and we'll go over the case. And um, <clears throat> I can tell you how it's handled from a police perspective, where most most lawyers get involved after the arrest. But you know, I have a lot of experience of what goes on before the arrest. Like, I've arrested people for you know homicides. Um, DUI, domestic violence, sexual battery, shoplifting, robbery, arson, whatever. I've actually made those arrests. So you have, a, with me, you have a little bit different perspective. And if any of those interest you, I'm more than happy to discuss them. That's it for the Law on the Life podcast. Law on the Life show, whatever you want to call it. This one, Law on the Life, behind the yellow tape, domestic violence. I hope I answered a lot of questions about domestic violence for you. Um, I'm going to go to questions here in a minute. I saw a couple that popped up. Uh, I plan to do the lives every Wednesday at around 6 p.m. I didn't do one last week because last week was so crazy busy. I, I just couldn't get to it on Wednesday. I should have done it another day, but all week was crazy. I'll be doing them. I'm going to try to be doing them every Wednesday at around 6 p.m. I'll put out on my different platforms, you know, a day or two ahead and then post every day up to it. As a reminder, I invite you all to come in. If you have any questions, just certainly happy to answer whatever questions you may have. And, uh, you know, whether they're about legal, legal aspects, lawyering, um, police life, starting a business, being an entrepreneur, or whatever I know, maybe I'm not an expert on it. I can tell you how things work for me. Maybe they'll work the same for you. I've done pretty good so far. All right, let's go to questions. All right, Joshua, I acknowledge you. Thanks for checking in, buddy. Social social media guru 365. We've been interacting a lot lately through different platforms. Very good guy. I always look forward to hearing from him. You work with lawyers? Okay, great. You can set up a call whenever you want. Just email me is the best way. I check, I check my social media, like all the time, all my messages and DMs on social media, I check them throughout the day. But the absolute best way to get a hold of me is is still through email, patrick at pjmlawyer.com. All right, Joshua, I'm glad you found the information useful. Let's see, Gwen, my buddy Gwen, who I call mom. She asks, when the attending officers at a DV call, testify at a later DV hearing or trial. Is their testimony relevant to the judge and counsel? Do they give their honest response to what they saw or heard? I hope they're honest when they get up there and testify. But yeah, that's the whole reason why they're called to testify. Whether it's a domestic violence injunction case on the civil side or a criminal domestic violence case, you're always going to have the officers in to testify. Because even though they write reports and they take statements, domestic violence reports are maybe two paragraphs. Domestic violence statements can be two sentences that the, the alleged victim writes out or the alleged witnesses write out. So you're always going to need to call the officers in and preferably take their depositions prior to any hearing or trial. The reason I push depositions, a lot of attorneys don't push depositions in domestic violence cases. I do domestic. I do depositions in domestic violence cases all the time, and the other lawyers hate it. But I don't like going into a domestic violence case and going to a trial or final hearing 
when a victim or witness can get up there and make up testimony on the fly. I'll do a deposition of them. I'll know what they're going to say, lock them into a story so they can't change it. And I know what I'm dealing with when I'm going to a hearing or dealing with when I'm going to a hearing or trial. That's the benefit of a deposition. In a lot of cases, there was a case not too long contradicted statements and allegations that the alleged victim made. And this, this witness was very, very credible. And the case was dismissed based on that deposition testimony. Depositions win cases and they can win cases outright. And the need for depositions can't be overstated. And, you know, people think, oh, you know, this domestic violence case is a misdemeanor or whatever. It may be a misdemeanor, but the consequences you can suffer if you get a finding for domestic violence or you get a domestic violence con conviction can be lifelong. So I hope that answered your question. All right, Joshua says you should do one on the Second Amendment law here in Florida. I thought about that, you know, with the red flag laws, the risk protection orders, the gun confiscation orders, whatever, whatever you want to call them. That's something new that Florida passed after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. Uh, they passed it real quickly. Those cases, they are heard in the domestic violence court. It's a different process. And I'll do an upcoming show or podcast on that and what I think about it, how that whole process works. Um, from what I, it's surprising what I've seen. Although it's in the domestic violence court, it's, it's, to, it's handled totally different. So I'll do that in an upcoming in an upcoming show. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thanks for checking in. Look for me every Wednesday. We'll be up on uh, we'll be up on YouTube. This will be up on YouTube. It'll be up on the podcast platforms. And then after this, in about 15, 10 or 15 minutes, I'll be on TikTok. If you want to go on TikTok uh, and catch me again there, I'll be on there talking, you know, basically the same thing in I had some people asking me some questions about murder cases there and they're supposed to check in and we're going to go over some murder, some murder case or murder investigation techniques. Please feel free to join me there. I'm the, uh, on TikTok. I'm the magic city lawyer, all underscore, uh, easy to find. You can always search by my name. I think I'm on there by name and, uh, come be one of my followers. I love my TikTok followers. I love all my followers on all my platforms. And, they send, I learned so much from my followers and I appreciate the information, the feedback they give me. And it's, it's just, it's just awesome. Anyway, thanks for joining me. That's it for this week. I enjoyed having you. Love you. Be safe out there.